Hi, this is Andy Yen from Proton, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 346 for October 16th, 2023, and we've got a fantastic interview with Andy Yen. He is the CEO of Proton. He is back on the show. I believe this is his third time on the show, uh, which puts him in the company of Bruce Schneier and Troy Hunt and Phil Zimmerman in the three-time club. Uh, we've got just a few guests, actually, that have been here more often than that. I, I was curious. I went back and actually did some math on this and looked at some of these uh, Daniel Davis and Chris Romeo, uh, who haven't we haven't had on the show either of those guys in a long time. They've been here longer. Corey Doctorow actually has been on the show five times, or will have been on the show five times, uh, coming up soon. As long along with Ernesto Falcone and John Graham Cumming from EFF and Cloudflare, respectively. So anyway, Andy's been on the show several times, and uh, we talked today about kind of your personal threat model and how to figure out. Of all the privacy and security products out there, which ones make sense for you? Because we're all different. Everyone has different things that they're trying to protect and different sets of consequences should that fail. And so there is no one size fits all. There is no silver bullet. There's no one product or even suite of products that will solve everyone's problems. And on top of all that, you've got to figure out of all these companies, and of all these products, which ones you can actually trust, which is not honestly an easy thing to figure out, which is, which is a shame. So today, uh, I will ask Andy some questions around that and much, much more. Real quick, I just want to note that the California Delete Act was signed into law. That is a big deal. Uh, I will try to talk more about that some next week, but we talked with Tom Kemp about that a, a little while ago, and uh, it's finally made it through. And I think we will probably all feel some benefit from that. All right, so real quick, before we get to the interview, there are a couple mild curse words in here. Uh, I usually try to give you a heads up if that's the case, because I don't really explicitly flag this show as uh, a podcast for adults, but I also don't really honestly don't care <laughs> if my guests curse a little bit, and I don't feel like trying to bleep it out or whatever. So anyway, just heads up, fair warning, uh, just a couple mild curse words. All right, with that in mind, let's get to our interview with Andy Yen. Andy is the founder and CEO of Proton. He was a scientist at CERN, has a PhD in physics from Harvard University, and has long worked to advance privacy and freedom online. Welcome back to the show, Andy. Hi, thanks for having me. It's always great to be back. So, uh, and again, I want to say thank you publicly for doing the blurb for the book. That was really a big deal, and I very much appreciate you doing that. Well, you know, uh, I actually meant what I said in the blurb. I do think it's one of the best resources out there. So, you know, um, I'm glad people are picking up a book and beginning to learn from it. So, yeah. Wish you all the success on this book. Thank you so much. All right. So Proton's gone from a secure email service to a company that offers a pretty comprehensive suite of products, including what VPN, calendar, cloud storage, password manager now, and, and, and even more. So let's do a little history here. How, how did you get from, from there to here? And, and what drove you to add these specific new features and products? Because in the last few years, you've added on a lot of new cool stuff. Yeah, well, I think what drives us hasn't really changed since 2014 when we started. Uh, you know, we were a crowdfunded community through an Indiegogo campaign, if you remember back in those days. Uh, it was, you know, donations at the beginning, right? Uh, and it was really community driven. And the things that we add, it's really in response to community demand. So, you know, calendar, we didn't wake up one day and get a brilliant insight that we need a calendar, right? It was, uh, <laughs> it was a hundreds of thousands of people knocking on our front door saying, build a calendar and do that. I was one of them. Uh, yep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, of the whole list of products, I would say there's maybe only two that stand out of it. You know, one's a VPN. When that came out, uh, it really came out of left field. People were like, where did this come from? Uh, <laughs> and that was maybe an example of us trying to anticipate what we think the market would need as opposed mm -hmm. to what we were asking for. And the need that we had forecasted at that time was it was only a matter of time before some governments in certain countries decided to block and ban Proton. Uh, mm -hmm. And at that point, those people would probably need a free VPN. The problem was all the VPNs out there were sketchy as hell. They were mining yeah. your data, leaking your information, logging your information. You couldn't trust any of them. Uh, so there was literally no free option on the market at that point, which is why we came in. And you know, I like to say we can kind of uh, see the future. Maybe we did in this case. Uh, but you know, fast forward to 2022, 
You have the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You have the war. Yeah. Uh, you have the censorship happening. And all of a sudden, you have you know uh, millions of Russians that want to get access to free information, want to access their proton mail. And these are mostly op- people who are opposed to the regime. And then Proton VPN, you know, became a lifeline in, in that case. So that was, I think, a very, you know, clear case. Yeah. Uh, password manager, it was also, you know, community demand, but we couldn't do it for many years because there was just too much going on. And then you'll probably recall last year, you know, we merged the company together with Simple Login. We kind of yes. got together and all of a sudden we had a team that was, you know, an expert in authentication, logging in, uh, things of that nature. And that gave us the capabilities to bring that to market. And I think it was quite interesting because they think about password manager, what is protect? It protects your passwords. But let's say you're following the rules correctly and you have a unique password for every single site that you're using. And that site is presumably doing its work properly and has, you know, hashed that password. Well, in a data breach, uh, you know, uh, the hash copy of your unique password gets leaked. Are you really that distraught over that? Uh, not really, right? It's not such a big issue. Right. But what else is leaked actually is your email address. And, you know, you can't take that back. It's a pain in the ass to change. I know because I get people to switch from Gmail to Google, uh, from Google and Gmail to Proton, and they tell me it's really hard, right? So, you know, right. it's, it's hard to change email addresses. Once you put it out there, you're at security risk with phishing and other attacks. Uh, so, in fact, what I saw was password managers, they were sort of protecting of the two pieces of information that they are supposed to protect, your login and your email, and your password. They were protecting and focusing on the ones that was actually the less important one, the password, mm. which is you know, easy to change. So I thought, you know, people tell me, well, pass is a crowded market, and it is, right? Uh, but I do think we were able to come to something that was unique, different, novel, and honestly, also better. Uh, and that's why we did hmm. it. Uh, and also met a community request as well. So, you know, it, it seems a bit random, uh, but it is largely what the community wants us to do because we're accountable to the users. And, you know, if you ask for it, uh, you're probably going to see it eventually. Well, all right. Fantastic. So when people ask me about what products to use, and I get that a lot, my response is almost always, you know, that depends. And, you know, then I try to explain the notion of a threat model, you know, so what are your risks? What are your consequences? What are you trying to protect? That sort of thing. So I want to talk a little bit about threat modeling today. So when when people inevitably ask you these kind of questions, how do you explain this concept with someone uh, who may not have a cybersecurity background? You know, what do you tell them? What kind of questions they should be asking themselves to kind of flesh this out? And and maybe do you have any suggested resources that might help people kind of figure out their threat model if they're not comfortable trying to do this on their own? Yeah, what I realized a couple of years ago is that no one really actually understands what is threat model. You know, we in the industry use the word very frequently, but people, they really have no clue. And so in terms of resources, about a year and a half ago, we did a series online of you know blog posts and we called it um, Privacy Decrypted. And it was really trying to decrypt uh, and make more simple some of these complicated concepts that are critically mm-hmm. important in privacy and security. And there were a series of maybe, I don't know, seven or eight blog posts, you know, all titled Privacy Decrypted with a topic afterwards. So if you go to proton.me slash blog, search up Privacy Decrypted, uh, you'll find it. And the first post in this series was actually on threat model. Uh, mm. Because I think that's actually the foundation upon yeah. which all privacy uh, needs to be built, right? Right. Uh, and for the uninitiated, the threat model is simply asking yourself the question, what am I trying to protect against, right? Uh, because depending on your objectives and who you are, what you need to do personally and you know, professionally and also from the tools you use can be radically different. And the key point about threat model that people miss that is really important to keep in mind, though, is there is no such thing as the best threat model, the perfect threat model, mm-hmm. or the one threat model. It's not one size fits all. In fact, you know, everybody uh, has a different threat model. And today we often see, you know, security solutions trying to be the, you know, get this in your safe, right? But it's not true because right. it depends right. on who Silver you're bullet. against. Yes, yes. So, so I think that the notion of understanding your personal threat model and also just acknowledging that everybody's threat model is different. Uh, you know, once you've done that, that's already a massive first step of it today. Sure, sure. All right. So given the fact that there's this broad spectrum of security and privacy needs out there, and honestly, people's varying degrees of tolerance for change, as you're thinking about these products and how you design your products, how do you decide how you balance security versus convenience? And then, you know, how do you decide what threat models that you guys want to address and which ones you, that you don't? Well, it's 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 very, you know, um, tricky one. I always tell people, if we wanted to, you know, optimize for security and privacy, 
then we could all use you know one-time pads and then we're done, right? <laughs> and, 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 and that's perfect. But I'm also reminded of something that you know I realized many years ago, and you know, I think someone made the point to me, which is that uh, you know the most secure product in the world doesn't actually bring any value to the world if no one can actually use it. Right. Uh, so this is, of course, you know, uh, the balance that you know we all have to strike somehow. And I have to say, at Proton, trying to find this balance is one of the most challenging things that you know we have to do. Why? Because our spectrum of users, let's say, uh, ranges from the dissident or the activist in a totalitarian regime that is trying to stay safe in fear of death, all the way to the other person that you know is signing up for OnlyFans and doesn't want that in their Gmail. Right. right. You know, this, this is a spectrum. So how do we cover the spectrum? Uh, and the honest answer is it's actually impossible. Right. Uh, you, you know, what I have to do is sort of pick a happy medium within this range, which is honestly, you know, a product choice that, you know, um, we ourselves make. So as a company, how do you confront this issue? And what I believe is the only way to solve this problem. Uh, well, there's two ways, right? Uh, number one is transparency. So if you're transparent about what you do and do not protect against and, you know, define your threat model with a, you know, an article that tells about threat models and, and you publicize that, then that I think honestly goes a long way because it lets people understand, you know, does this product work for my threat model or not? So transparency is the first one. And then the second way to do it is by incorporating different product features that cater to different threat models. Uh, mm-hmm. but making those features optional. Uh, so I give you one example, you know, and maybe people miss this. Years ago, uh, we introduced, uh, something in ProtonMail called, you know, address verification. And actually, I'll put the question to you. Do you even know what address verification? Have you heard of it before? I mean, we're talking like DKM and that kind of stuff or something more simple. Yeah. 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 You, you see, so, 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 you know, and, and in that regard, I think I've succeeded because if you knew about it uh, and everybody knew about it, uh, <laughs> then I would have done it wrong because I don't want everybody to, you know, uh, use this feature because it's not for your threat model, right? But here's a common problem in encrypted email. Today, when you're messaging someone else on Proton, actually you're encrypting with your public key, right? This is how technically it works. But the question needs to be asked, how can you trust the public key that you have been served, uh, you know, over the internet, right? Right. Uh, and actually that's a big problem because if Proton was being malicious, I could actually serve you a fraudulent, a fake, you know, public key and right. execute in a sudden fashion a man-in-the-middle attack. Uh, and this is not unique to Proton, right? This is unique to every single end-to-end crypto service out there. But the odds that you would have a threat model where this is a real threat to you is highly unlikely. Yet, there are some people within our user base for which they cannot take any chance. Even the chance of getting a fraudulent public key is too high of a risk for them, right? Uh, so address verification is actually a form of key pinning. Uh, what it does is it pins the signature of public keys of your known contacts uh, in your contacts. And if you're composing email and then, you know, the key is not the one that you expect, it pops up a warning to tell you. And, you know, this sounds crazy. You would never need this feature. It sounds, you know, way out of the deep end, right? But because Proton is trying to use features to cater to wider range of threat models, uh, we have this feature. No one knows about it. But if you're a person that's paranoid enough or, you know, sensitive enough for this matters to you, it's there. And this is, I think, one of the ways in which, you know, we try to strike this balance, right? By having optional features, not for everybody, to reflect the fact that not every threat model is the same. Gotcha. Is there just kind of a tool within Proton or maybe a series, maybe it's part of that series of articles that actually kind of walks you through some of these things and helps you decide, hey, maybe you didn't know about this feature, but if this is something that's important to you, this maybe this is a feature you might, you might want to enable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, if you go dig in security settings, uh, which, you know, uh, most people don't go, but, you know, if you want to go dig there, uh, you'll find a lot of these little, you know, um, secret, uh, you know, gems in there, right? And I'll give you another example, which is, uh, you know, what I consider, uh, you know, um, IP logging. Let's talk about IP logging for a moment, right? If your threat model is, I want to stay anonymous, I don't want the government to track me, IP logging is, you know, uh, is terrible because it can break your ability to be anonymous, right? Right. But let's say you're very uh, security focused and you're a public figure. Well, you're not trying to hide your identity because everybody knows who you are, you're a public figure, right? And in this case, actually IP logs could be very valuable for you because it allows you to see where the logins are coming from. And if mm. you see a login in your account coming from say, you know, Russia or something, uh, then that might put up a red flag for you and allow you to detect the breach in your account faster, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so. 
you know, you cannot universally say that for privacy, mm. IP logs is bad. Uh, right. you know, IP logs could be bad depending on your threat model. Uh, and this is why, again, you know, at Proton, IP logs off by default. But if you want, you can turn them on. Uh, so, you know, uh, this is just another example of this. And, and this is why the discussion of threat modeling is, you know, uh, so important because we often have preconceived notions of what is private, what is not private, what is secure, what is not secure. But oftentimes, you know, uh, the, let's say, default answer may not even be the correct one for you, right? Uh, and it's very, very uh, context dependent. Right. And that's a great example. And, and it's a, it's an excellent point <laughs> that these things are often conflicting. I mean, the, the different settings that make sense for different audiences for different threat models and some of them are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that, that's a, that's a great point. So when we're talking about security and privacy companies, there's a lot of companies out there, as I'm sure you're well aware, that are selling, you know, ineffective or inadequate or even borderline fraudulent security and privacy products. So, and as regular consumers that don't have technical background, how, you know, how can we, how can we as consumers figure out what we can trust and which products actually do what they claim to do? Are there any objective litmus tests that we, that you could recommend? Uh, are there any red flags that we should cause us to steer clear of certain products? How do, mm -hmm. how do we do this evaluation? Well, I think there's a couple ways. The first way is probably to check if something is open source, because um, no matter what the claim is, unless you know, you have access to the source code and it has been independently verified by other people that can see the source code. It's very hard to trust any of these claims. So I think, you know, open source is the closest thing that we have to a litmus test. Then, even if, you know, uh, everything is open source, actually, I would say that's not sufficient uh, to remove trust because trust is always part of the equation. Mm -hmm. uh, because even open source software, at the end of the day, is written by people. And people, uh, you know, have their biases, people can make mistakes, uh, people can be compromised. So what I would say in addition to open source is sort of, uh, you know, transparency, uh, you know, in terms of people. And let me maybe give the example of Proton, right? At Proton, I'm a public figure. People know who is behind the company, uh, you know, our other, you know, uh, key people, we're all public, right? Mm -hmm. So what I'm doing is actually I am staking my personal reputation and my, you know, scientific, you know, integrity behind the fact that my products, you know, um, say and actually, you know, do what they say, right? And if you were to compare it to, let's say, you know, some random VPN company where it's a shadowy person that sits in the background, you don't even know who they are and mm -hmm. where they're based and what they do, that person is not personally putting anything on the line mm -hmm. and doesn't have, let's say, the same incentives from a personal and professional standpoint to do things in the right way, because I have placed my whole reputation on the line. You know? uh, and I think that's a very important element in trust as well, because the transparency, what it gives isn't just transparency for, for transparency's sake, right? What transparency gives is actually something much more important, which is accountability. Uh, and, and accountability is what I think the industry needs. And it can only be achieved really by being transparent. Well, that's an interesting point because, and this is something I often bring up when people talk about uh, these things with me, is I say, well, follow the money, uh, see who's behind it, what what the funding is, what the business model is, and and who what the reputation of the company is behind it. But in this industry, as you well know, there's a, been a, there's a lot of mergers and acquisitions, and mm -hmm. so sometimes uh, you know when LastPass was bought out by LogMeIn, that was a that was a troubling moment for me because I didn't know where they were going to go with it. There was a mm -hmm. VPN I used a long time ago that got bought out as well by somebody else, and I'm like, so now what happens? What happens to all the data? What happens to the products and there have i've seen it go both ways i've seen cases where it was a the, the company that bought them out gave them the funding they needed gave them the resources they needed they created better products they had better backing better support and other cases where it was some hedge fund or some you know like this is really true in the vpn industry right? there's a lot of consolidation in the vpn industry where it turns out it's just people trying to turn a buck and they cut corners for security and privacy so <laughs> tell me a little bit about how do we i don't know how you, how you defend against that or how do you even know in some cases that this has even happened yeah well, a lot of times it happens and you don't know, right? right. Uh, this, this is the issue. Uh, and this is why I think it comes out of people again, because you have to understand, you know, what is the intrinsic motivation of, you know, a company? What is a company's mission, right? And if I look across, let's say, most of the VPN industry, I would say the mission is to make as much money as possible, <laughs> uh, you know, um, without regards to whether it's scrupulous or not, right? It's just, you know, quick money. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you see this because, you know, these, you have these companies that are spending probably the vast majority of their margin and their revenue just on advertising, right? Uh, and, right. You, and you wonder, okay, well, how much money then is actually going in a product? So 
uh, you know, uh, people is not a guarantee of this, but I think understanding who runs these businesses is, 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 is you know, is important. I'll, you know, I'll give you an example, right? You know, if, if you have a company uh, that is run by, okay, and not to knock, you know, business dudes, right? But, you know, someone that used to work at a hedge fund and, you know, got an MBA from somewhere, you know, you know who do you think that's going, right? That company yeah. is probably going to get sold and flipped for a pod, profit in a couple of years, right? You know, if right. a company is taken, let's say, let's take the, let's take the example of, you know, one pastor, right? The company has taken, you know, um, 1 billion roughly in, you know, VC funding. Well, that tells you who controls that business and where that's going to go in the, in the future. And, you know, we're not saying that Proton is the perfect counterexample, but, you know, the fact that we today don't have VC investors, uh, you know, the fact that it's um, run by scientists, I can tell you, you know, there's no money in science, right? You don't go to science to make a buck. Uh, <laughs> there are no bucks to be made in science, right? You know, uh, it's, it's not, let's say, definitive, but it does, I think, you know, provide more confidence. And the most important thing, though, also is sort of, kind of alignment. Because if you look at Proton's brand, the reason people trust us is actually because we're different, because, you know, um, because we are scientists, you know, because we are for open source mm. and you know, because we are here for the mission, because we do believe in what we're, you know, doing rather than, you know, making the fastest buck, right? And that also kind of in a counterintuitive way also creates a financial incentive to stay the course. And I'll kind of explain what I mean by this, right? Mm. If I were to suddenly, you know, uh, change my stripes, uh, tomorrow and, you know, Go full on, you know, influencer marketing on YouTube, sponsoring every single channel and also taking on, you know, massive amounts of, you know, uh, VC money and being a completely different company. Actually, I would say a lot of Proton users will look at that and be turned off by that. And they would probably leave, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so because of the brand that we've built, because of the way that we have uh, done things for the past 10 years, actually there is a financial incentive that even if I were to get struck by lightning and become evil tomorrow, um, it wouldn't be in Proton's financial best, you know, interest to actually change the current course because people are, have come here because of the culture that we have built. So, you know, uh, so this is why in the long run, this actually provides a safeguard as well. Uh, because, you know, who you attract is who your customer base is and you're ultimately accountable to your customers, right? You know, the people that pick, let's say, you know, an ExpressVPN or NordVPN, they probably don't give a shit about privacy, right? They just want to watch Netflix. Uh, but the ones that take Proton VPN out of the other ones, they care about who I am and what and my mission. And that in its own way also forces me to stay on the current course I'm on. Yeah. So uh, there's in this community, I, 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 there's so many reviews and, and people are trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, we're, we're trying to pick the best products and features and, and, and for, for our audiences. And I've seen so many different review sites that, that, tend to go for like the f- most dire threat model. Like if you are not perfect, absolutely perfect. And they, and however they define perfect, uh, you can't be trusted. Um, you know, maybe you're part of a five eyes country or you're located to five eyes country, or you uh, have been just bought up by somebody else. Maybe you're not hundred percent open source. Maybe you don't have audits and, and they, they try to nitpick everything. Yeah. I, I'm sure you must get this all the time. How, if you could talk to these people that review these products, how would you recommend that they give a more balanced, <laughs> more fair, perspective on these things and, and the transparency and the the nod to, well, maybe this isn't your threat model. It seems to me like a lot of people want to talk in absolutes and there just aren't absolutes. Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. you could talk to these people who are reviewing your products what or products like your products, how would you recommend mm-hmm. that the, the most sincere, useful way is to review security and privacy products? Mm-hmm. There's two elements to this. First is just understanding, right? Uh, if you don't understand the technology underlying the products, then it's hard for you to be able to come up with an objective you know, yardstick on measuring products. Not a pick on VPN, but I'll kind of give you an example, right? You know, uh, there was a craze a couple of years ago, which is still going on today, you know, and still seeing the reviews about, you know, diskless servers, right? And I asked this question, okay, you know, if you're not logging, if you don't send the information, you know, on the server, and if your server, you know, is fully encrypted, why does it matter if it's diskless or not? Hmm. So this is something that is completely security theater. Uh, that, that's mm-hmm. a term for this, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it stems from the fact that, you know, these people doing reviews sometimes don't have the technical knowledge to really begin to assess whether something is actually important for security or it's purely security theater. I see the argument about, you know, countries and location coming up. And some people say that it's bogus, but actually I do think it matters. Uh, and and I'll, I'll give you an example, right? You know, Proton Drive, for example, take that as an example. Everything is end-to-end encrypted. I could, in theory, store all my data in Russia, and it would actually be safe, right? In theory. 
Um, mm-hmm. But in practice, that's not the case. Because in practice, uh, you know, if you have infrastructure in Russia, you've just given the Russian government leverage, right? Uh, you know, um, mm-hmm. so, you know, you can claim, for example, that you're based in Panama, but if all your employees are in the U.S. Uh, and you're operating out of the U.S., then the U.S. government has leverage. You know, they, they don't care who your post box is actually located. Uh, they're going to come get you because, you know, and, and they're going to get you where you're located, right? Uh, so, mm-hmm. so I, I think, I think, um, things like that, like, like the, like the location that you're based in, that's something that, that does actually matter. So it's, it's really education. Now, the second part of this is also the question of, you know, who's writing the reviews and how are they incentivized? And in the VPN industry in particular, I would say the top review sites, uh, at least the majority of them, are actually owned by VPN companies, right? Right. Uh, so, you know, you, you might go to a, a site like, I guess one that everybody knows about is, you know, VPN Mentor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, VPN Mentor is owned by Cake. Uh, which owns Express, Private Internet Access, CyberGhosts, etc. So you go, you go on there, and, and you look at the top VPNs, and you know, guess which ones are the top four, right? right? Uh, yeah. Surprise, surprise, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think that's the other aspect of the game, uh, and, and it's very difficult because you, as a consumer, uh, you have no way of knowing about that relationship. It's not openly and publicly disclosed to you in an easy to find way, right? Uh, so the average consumer really has no clue, and I think that's the problem with the review industry is that you know, it's sort of gotten in bed with the products themselves. And a lot of times you really can't trust reviews because you don't understand what the financial incentives are that are driving these reviews. All right. So we talked about the country of origin and maybe that's even the wrong word. So there's, there's, there's a lot of country things involved. And you just brought up one that I didn't even really consider it is it's not just a matter where the headquarters, the financial headquarters is. It's not just a matter where the data server actually resides. It's actually where the employees are, right? Yes, uh, yes. Because you could pressure the employees too. And I mean, often the weakest link in any system is humans. So yes. For the average Joe, is this really something that we need to look at? Do I, I mean, do we need to look at where the, all our data is hosted if I'm for my emails and things like that? Or is this really just for the higher level threat models for mm-hmm. politicians yeah. and activists and things like that? Well, I think the, uh, you know, uh, for the average person, you're more worried about, you know, the privacy company that you trusted, um, then turning around, getting sold and then selling your data, right? Uh, and mm-hmm. validating your privacy. So that's the actual, you know, probably what, what worries you. But if you're a more sensitive use case, you know, so yeah, a lot of people say, oh, you know, VPN companies in the U.S. is fine, right? But, you know, the U.S. has FISA courts. Uh, there's things like national security letters, right? Uh, you know, um, you could get served with a national security letter that forces you to log and also not disclose it, in which case you would start to log and not disclose it if you're based in the U.S. because you're subject to U.S. law. Uh, mm-hmm. So, in fact, you know, that is a real concern. And this is why I think transparency of location is important. You know, when I look at a VPN, I would say what makes Proton kind of unique is, well, we're one of the only VPNs that has an address on our website, right? And, you know, you could go to the address that's on the website, knock on the door, and, you know, I'm actually sitting at the address that's on our website, right? <laughs> uh, and, and, and this is like unheard of in the industry, right? And, and I think uh, you need that transparency because where people are based, it is important. And, you know, I'm sitting here in Geneva, Switzerland, because I know the Swiss government cannot come tomorrow and force me to log. There is no legal way in which they can do that uh, under Swiss law. But that's not the case in in the US. So I do think it does matter. And the bigger problem is a lot of times these people, you know, might say one country, but they're not actually there. You know, I, I, I can, I'm not going to give the examples, but there's, but there's practically no VPN company other than Proton that is actually at the country that they say they're at, right? Uh, so that actually poses a big risk for you because you don't know what they actually are. So as a result, you actually don't know what risk you're exposed to because they haven't disclosed to you what risk you might, you know, face based off of, of their location, which, you know, you don't actually know, right? As an engineer, are there engineering technical solutions to this? Like, uh, you know, you mentioned the diskless things, which in turn doesn't really matter if you've got it encrypted, but it, it, is it, can you set your business up so that you can't log? I don't know if that's possible. Can you, can you, other technical solutions to these other than political solutions or geographical solutions to uh, making sure that you engender trust with your audience and say, look, we can't be forced to do this because it's not technically possible. Well, as an engineer, I would say everything is technically possible, right? <laughs> uh, you know, it's impossible to say, oh, you know, this is completely ruled out. And you do need to trust people at the end. So what it becomes is a question of leverage. How do you design your company in a way that you don't give any potentially you know, dangerous party too much leverage over you and your business? And that is like an organizational design question that really has to come from the beginning. You have to actually build it in a certain way to avoid mm-hmm. those risks. Even Proton, for example, 
we don't put all of our eggs in the Swiss basket because that actually would give too much leverage to one country. And you know, we know that, well, the laws of math are pretty constant, right? But the laws of a country, all it takes is one election for that to change. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a conscious choice. You must take it at the very beginning on how you organize your business. And if you don't factor that in at the very start when you're building the organization, it actually becomes too late. You can't change it after a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, a, it's a tricky topic, right? That people don't like to talk about it. But um, if you want to do things properly, it's something that you do have to factor into account. All right. So I don't know how much you can talk about this, but I'm curious, how much, you know, has Proton received in terms of pushback, either directly or indirectly from law enforcement or government agencies for offering your services? Like, I mean, I, I must imagine that privacy, like Signal and some of these other companies that are very privacy focused, there's a lot of legislation being passed right now to try to force open, you know, or put back doors and encryption, things like that. So I'm, I'm just curious, what can you tell us, if anything, about how you have resisted or been approached by government saying, Hey, you got, you got to stop doing this, or you got to give us privileged access, or can you just, can you just tweak this thing right here? <laughs> yeah. It's changed over time. And I think what is important that we, in thinking about this is a long-term trend. So when we started in 2014, actually, uh, within a couple of days of starting, uh, PayPal shut us down because it said encryption is illegal, right? It's, it's, it's not true, but that's what they believe. Right. Um, but that just goes to show the perception, you know, when we started, you know, nine years ago, a lot of people thought what we were doing was actually illegal. Um, and, and that kind of shows you where government and where society was, you know, in hmm. terms of their thinking, right? Then, of course, you know, Snowden came out around the same time. Yeah. You know, we had Cambridge Analytica. We had all these things going on, right? And, and then there are all these, you know, massive attacks and hacks by state actors. We had, you know, Russia trying to influence U.S. election through hacking. You know, we had, we had Hillary's emails getting hacked, right? Mm. All, all, all these different things. Um, so... What I can say is, you know, these same governments that in 2014 were very strongly criticizing us, uh, well, today, some of them are now customers of our products, right? <laughs> uh, so, so basically they realized that actually we need encryption to stay safe. So I would say the long-term trend is good. It's positive. But that doesn't mean that there's, you know, progress. You know, it's, it's like you take two steps forward and then, and then one step back, right? It, it's a bit like that sometimes. So currently, there is sort of a push, uh, you know, in US, in UK, but also in Europe to try to do more, uh, to, you know, um, crack down on encryption. So the whole talk of the encryption backdoor has come up again, right? Mm -hmm. And I expect this fall, there will be more debates about this. In my kind of, you know, opinion, I feel like, you know, the cat's out of the bag when it comes to encryption, right? Uh, but, um, legislators will always push back on this. So today, of course, we need to have people, you know, both in Brussels, but also in DC. Uh, sort of educating lawmakers about you know why encryption is important and how you can't build a backdoor that only lets the you know uh, good people in, right? Uh, so that I think part of the business has changed. You know, um, our focus in the early days was purely purely tech. It was only technology. It was only products. Uh, but today, I actually need to spend a significant amount of time on on, on education and lobbying. So you know, um, Prota, you know, I wouldn't call them lobbyists, right? But we have you know public policy people in Brussels and in Washington D.C which is essential because if we're not there passing on the message, then I don't know who is. And, but that becomes absolutely essential because, you know, the arena, let's say, in which uh, we fight for privacy has also changed. That's a great point, actually. I, I've got to wonder is, do you have like a, an outreach program to politicians? Because for the, for the ones that have had their emails actually hacked or, or people that certainly being in the, you know, being in Congress, you've probably know somebody who's had their accounts hacked. Have you reached out to these people say, I'll give you a free Proton Ultimate account, yeah. you know, to help them understand the value of this personally? Would that maybe change some hearts and minds? Yeah. So uh, our teams in DC and in Brussels, uh, they actually spend almost all their time meeting politicians. I've also been myself, uh, you know, personally to Capitol Hill in, in the US twice to kind of educate and, uh, you know, inform. And I've done the same thing also twice in Brussels. Uh, so it's absolutely essential. And I think you know, Proton is fortunate to be a bigger company now, but we have the resources to do this. Mm. But I would encourage you know, other players in the privacy industry, you know, as long as they get to bigger scale, this is an investment that you have to make. There is no ROI from it. There's no money I'm going to you know, make from doing this. In fact, it's a cost center that costs us quite a bit of money every single year. But if we want privacy to survive you know, in the next 100 years, uh, we need to start laying the groundwork uh, and you know setting the stage now and doing the education now. 
Well, and you, you said you're, I think, what, over 500 employees at this point at, at Proton? Uh, no, we're, we're over 400. Over 400. So it, any company of a decent size has to sometimes or must have to worry about infiltration by bad actors. You know, when you're a small company, you know everybody. And, <laughs> and yeah. I would think it's a little more simple. But now when, you, you know, when you're hiring a lot of people, I would think that that can be a security risk. So what sort of security precautions can be implemented to protect against insider threats? For example, Tesla. I mean, they just mm-hmm. two employees of Tesla just gave up like all their employees, you know, personal details. Um, I would have to think that's a, a significant threat. Yeah, I think it's it's extremely difficult to do properly. To be you know completely yeah. honest with you, there's a couple ways to approach it. One is if you set up your security procedures and internal processes in a way that someone who would think to do something like this is almost uh, for sure going to get caught. Uh, that can be a very strong deterrence, right? Mm. Because if you do get caught, uh, there are you know very strong personal uh, you know um, implications for yourself. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, um, we do put into place. Secondly, it's just, you know, rigorous background checks. So understand who they're from, you know, where their family is based, you know, um, do they have a, do they have a grandma in Moscow, for example, right? Hmm. Uh, that, you know, could get dragged into the basement of the FSB headquarters and, you know, compelled to force them to do something, right? Uh, so, you know, hmm. understanding points of leverage, points of weakness, do rigorous background checks. This you always have to do. And the third thing, is really just by, you know, um, limiting control as much as you can, right? So, you know, applying the principle of least access. So only give someone access to something if they absolutely you know, need to have access. And then the fourth thing, which is what, you know, Proton really practices is a malicious actor cannot steal from you or leak from you something that you yourself don't have. <laughs> so if I equip things properly and have as little, have a little data as possible, that's actually the most effective way of, you know, minimizing the uh, attack surface here. Uh, and that's indeed what we try to do, right? We try to encrypt as much as we practically can. Uh, we try to retain as little information as we can on our customers. And, and it's, it's also a security tool because it makes Proton as a company a less appealing target if you know there just isn't a lot that you can get if you were to get in. Yeah, I, I was going to comment on the LastPass breach because that was that that was the DevOps guy who was working from home and he got his Plex server hacked. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, yeah. Even... But but anyway. but you know what you know what problem with the LastPass uh, breach was? The LastPass breach was the fact that you know they didn't encrypt the uh, you know um, well, website sure, yes. and, and, and the domains. Right? That was you know, horrible. Uh, you know, um, they didn't use bcrypt. They used some other you know weak uh, hashing algorithm, right? So it wasn't that they got hacked. Everybody's going to get hacked sooner or later, right? It's bound to happen. It, it, is, it is inevitable. It was that their security practices uh, were so poor that they made it really easy to take that data and potentially breach it in the future. And so if you're a LastPass user, your encrypted data store is sitting somewhere on the internet, and it's just a matter of time before someone's able to crack it because they didn't use the right technologies. So here's a question for you, and this is this is a tough one, and this is what I, the people have asked me: Do you stop trusting a company like LastPass? Do, uh, do or do you hope that they're going to fix it and move and, and get better as a result of this? What, how many strikes do you give a company like, like you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in kind of like a perverse way, I almost sort of uh, prefer a company that's had an incident <laughs> because because uh, if you never had an incident, maybe you just never aware and never woke up, right? <laughs> right. Uh, Right. So, so, so I, I think the fact that they had an incident does mean that they take it more seriously now. And that might be better than someone that, that, you know, never got hacked. Right. But you also need to look at the nature of the hack. Right. And, you know, security, where it comes from ultimately is culture. It's people. It's the way they think, the way they act, the way they behave, what they consider to be acceptable. Mm. And if you look at the last past situation, what was considered to be acceptable was actually an extremely low bar. And I'm sure they're awake now, but to realign the bar for your entire organization, you know, top to bottom, uh, that's an extremely difficult thing to do and very, very hard to do on a short time frame, right? So I would be still a bit wary, let's say, right? Uh, because I know from personal experience how hard it is to change culture within, within an, an you know, organization. But yeah, I think it's wrong to just kind of say, you know, oh, if you got hacked, then you're bad because everybody's going to get right. hacked sooner or later. It, 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 it is kind of inevitable. But it's really a question of, you know, where was your bar at, right? And, you know, um, what, and, and what the hack can often teach us is sort of the level of, you know, rigor that a company had in the work that they were, you know, were doing. And that can be very telling. 
Well, I think another example is Zoom, because back in the day when Zoom, you know, when COVID hit, Zoom went from a nobody to a household name, and they were claiming all this end-to-end encryption, which turned out they didn't have. But then their response to that, I thought, was you know, good. I mean, they hired a lot of top-notch people, uh, some people that, you know, anybody in the security industry would know their names uh, to come in and, and fix things. And I think they actually have made a lot of progress. Um, so, yeah, I think sometimes maybe it takes an incident like that to to, to, yeah. to get you to, yeah. you know, shape up. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's it's kind of a wake-up call, right? Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, so I can give it kind of, and this is all the same for, you know, uh, legal processes, right? You know, there are some people out there, you know, in the space pinning against Proton, who, who, you know, what they say is, oh, you, you know, um, Proton had this, you know, uh, uh, had legal issues and legal court cases where, you know, you know, governments came after Proton user data, et cetera, et cetera, right? And, and you know, um, and uh, we're better because it's never happened to us. <laughs> and, and, and my reaction to that is, uh, you know, that's not the case, right? Because because it never happened, uh, no one actually knows what will happen when they come for you, right? You don't, right. You don't even know yourself, right? Uh, but you know, Proton, because there's been thousands of cases, there's now a, tr- a you know a strong legal track record and precedent of how this is handled, right? You know conclusively what Proton has or doesn't have because it's gone through seven thousand cases, right? Uh, so, so so it's it's kind of the same, I, I think, with you know security as well. The the the, the notion of being battle tested is actually a real notion, and I think uh, you know organizations are frequently under attack. It does make them tougher. You know, um, I'm not saying that we have the best. DDoS protection in the world, but the fact that we've been hit so regularly, so consistently over the past six years, has made us do some things different that probably other companies that don't get hit, uh, you know, wouldn't do. All right. So speaking of threat models and uh, especially higher threat models, you guys just rolled out a program which I did not see coming. I don't know if this is something you even telegraphed that was coming, but it's called Sentinel Program Sentinel, and uh, it was designed. Well, actually, let me ask you: Who was it designed for, and what sorts of protections does it provide? Well, it really comes down to threat model. And I think, you know, uh, logins is, is a very good example, right? You know, today, it doesn't matter who you are and who your enemy, you know, is. Uh, everybody more or less gets put through the same login authentication process, right? And our view on this is, you know, if you're the Proton user that has a Proton account to, you know, access OnlyFans because you want to keep it hidden from your wife, right? Mm-hmm. You know, your threat model is probably not as severe as a dissident that is using Proton because if their communication gets leaked, uh, you know, they're going to get executed, right? Uh, so yeah. uh, given this range, it makes no sense to treat security as the same. And we should differentiate. Uh, now, what is the problem? If I were to uh, apply the same rules to everybody across my entire user base and the same, you know, type of rigorous analysis in blocking fraudulent logins, uh, number one, that doesn't scale. And uh, number two, that could also be hugely inconvenient. Uh, mm-hmm. So what is Sentinel and what does it do? Well, Sentinel is essentially an enhanced security program that is better at detecting when a suspicious action is taken on a protected account. And what it will do in this case is apply more stringent and you know, uh, secure ways to police the logins. So mm-hmm. to give you an example, Let's say you're a politician that has Sentinel you know, enabled, right? And you know um, you have uh, flown to a different country. Well, when you try to log in, uh, you know, at your destination, because your account is protected by Sentinel, you may actually be forced to you know SMS verify, right, uh, before you're able to get into your account. And it makes sense because this person is under greater threat. But the average for the average user, that could be super annoying. They could be really mm. pissed at me if I did that to them every single time, right? But the politician, uh, you know, would be able to accept that because they understand that they need to have higher level security. Uh, and, and, and this is one example of, you know, um, how we do things a bit differently. Now, of course, uh, Google also has, you know, advanced protection. You know, Facebook has their own program. This type of program is not new. I think what uh, makes Proton's uh, Sentinel program different is it's not just about setting, uh, you know, more strict defaults, right? You know, these programs from Google, what they do is they, they, they force the defaults to be high, to be very high. So they force mm. you to use a hardware authentication key, for example, right? Mm. And we don't do that. In fact, even though we highly recommend 2FA, we don't even force it, uh, because, you mm. know, some people, some people don't want it, right? Some people, uh, you know, refuse to use it. Uh, you know, I can't force upon them something they don't want. So what Proton does is it, Sentinel does is it's not about putting insanely high defaults. 
even though we do strongly recommend it and strongly encourage people to do that. What it's about is combining human with machine analysis. So all tech companies are using AI and machine learning to try to find you know, suspicious activity and try to block that. But even the best AIs in the world today are still not as good as the best humans. And you know, arguably, they will never be as good as the best humans because mm. there's still some human element that you know, uh, is, is superior. So with Proton Sentinel, there's a team of analysts uh, that work 24 uh, seven you know, across uh, three different time zones, which are monitoring suspicious uh, you know, events taking place on accounts that are protected in the program. And so you know, it, might, it maybe gets flagged by algorithm, but a human is reviewing it. And this actually get, gives you a much higher level of accuracy than is possible if you were to use only machines for only humans. Because the algorithms allow them to work at scale. It allows them to scan maybe you know uh, ten thousand accounts at once, right? Mm-hmm. So it flags the accounts that have issues, uh, and then the human can do a much better analysis than AI could. So I think it's that human element that you know uh, makes it different. Uh, but that's also why it doesn't really scale. You know, we cannot scale it yeah. to everybody because you know I would have to hire a thousand people or more to to, to <laughs> do that, right? Which is practically impossible. But it's also okay that not everybody has it because not everybody is going to be facing the same level of threats. So, well, you lead right on my next question, which is you do have this now made available to anybody with a paying account, as far as I can tell. Uh, so are you worried that a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, I'll sign up for that. <laughs> and now yeah, you're going to yeah. be slammed with, you know, a lot of people who really don't need this uh, signing up nonetheless. Will you will be able to scale with that? Well, uh, it's not to every paid account. It's, it's, it's to all unlimited accounts. So that does, you know, um, limit the, uh, mm. the universe a bit. Um, but um, actually, I do think it can scale because... If you don't really need this and you activate it, first of all, it's a good thing to activate because it doesn't hurt, right? But your account is probably not likely to get targeted. So it's not going to generate that many security events for analysts to analyze, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas some of the accounts, you know, so I can't say who, right? But some of the politician accounts that, you know, we protect, we're seeing events like every single day. And, and that's, that's of course a very high load. And I'm telling you, you know, some of these politicians maybe are only paying us, you know, 10 euros a month, right? And we're spending way more time than that, uh, to help them. But it's a bit like insurance, right? You know, there's some people that cost insurance comes a lot of money. Other people who are very healthy and, and, you know, never pay a dime from the insurance company, right? Uh, so, so it's, it's a similar concept, but, you know, um, applied at scale. Uh, so, so it does, so, so it can actually scale in the same way that insurance can scale. You know, it doesn't work if everybody files a claim, but not everybody's going to get sick. And just like for us, not everybody's going to get hacked. Interesting. All right. Well, I, I signed up for it myself just because I wanted to see what it was like so I could kind of report on it and get a feel for what it's going to do. I haven't had it long enough to know if I'm going to get a lot of emails about, hey, this looks suspicious or I get challenged for it. We'll, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, but um, I did get a welcome email with it that had, among other things, in it. it suggested that I send you guys to a particular email address at Proton uh, details about my threat model to, quote, help us more effectively protect your account, unquote. I'm just mm-hmm. curious, how does how does that information affect the service? What changes might you make based on what I might email you about me? Well, part of Proton's challenge is that because we are a privacy company, we really don't know who our customers <laughs> are. Right? I, you know, I honestly don't know and I can't say most of the time. And it's different with Google because Google probably has your full name and has your airplane <laughs> tickets. You know, it knows exactly yes. who you are, right? Yes. But, but honestly, I, I don't know. And that can be sometimes a hindrance because let's take, for example, you know, um, you're a journalist uh, reporting on Russia, right? And you have already previously been targeted by Russian state organizations and state hackers. Knowing that information is hugely valuable to me in protecting your account because I know, okay, I know these are the signals of, you know, advanced persistent threats from Russia. I know these are things that they do, right? I can apply that pattern recognition now to your account to see if I see some of those same behaviors. Hmm. But I wouldn't want to apply this to, you know, everybody because it wouldn't make a lot of sense, right? So what this request, you know, it's optional, of course, of letting people identify themselves to me is simply making sure that in protecting sensitive users, I have the same information that, you know, a Google or a Facebook or someone else would have, right? If you have a Facebook account and you're a politician, you know, and, and, and it says, for example, you know, Donald J. Trump, they know who that is, right? But, you know, we don't have that information. So it, it's, it's optional, but it does let us customize uh, based off of the threats that we expect you to face and the threats that we have seen. Uh, so, you know, um, if you say I'm a journalist working on Russia issues, well, because I have hundreds of other journalists 
as well, uh, who we have seen attacked in the past. I know what to expect. I know what protections to apply. And I can apply sort of, you know, the playbook that we use to protect them uh, to you. And that is probably better than the default. So if I'm a politician or a dissident or somebody, actually probably more like a dissident or a journalist, and I'm considering this, should I worry that I'm giving you this information that I assume must now be associated with my account that could then be queried? Is it is that something that, for instance, law enforcement could say, hey, give me everything that this person self-reported about their account? Yeah, and, and, and this is why it's, it's, it's optional, because it depends on your threat model, right? Uh, you know, yeah. um, so if your threat model is Russian law enforcement, well, Russian law enforcement cannot get information out of Switzerland. It, it doesn't happen, right? You know, uh, Switzerland doesn't cooperate with countries uh, like that. And that's why we're banned in Russia, by the way, right? <laughs> uh, so if your threat model is, you know, um, Putin's, uh, you know, spies coming after you, then actually you're not running a risk by giving us mm. this information, right? Now, Swiss police could access it. But, you know, if, if you're a, a journalist in Russia, you know, are you actually concerned about the Swiss police? Maybe not, right? Mm. So this is why, uh, you know, that's why, that's why it's optional. And it goes to our philosophy of kind of customizing, right? You know, if, if you're using Google, you don't have an option. Google's default is to mine all your data and throw a profile on you, right? Uh, but with Proton, yeah. uh, you can decide what you disclose, what you don't disclose. And, you know, um, we will do the best that we can for the information that we have. So without naming names, I know this this program just went public, but it's been around for a while. I don't know if you call it beta testing or what. I know that, or maybe you just kind of VIP treatment handed this off to certain people that you thought might want it. But it, so mm-hmm. it's just been in existence before you announced it. So have mm-hmm. there been any, without naming names, have there have there been incidents that, that you've been able to block uh, because of Sentinel? Have you have you learned mm-hmm. from these incidents? I'm just curious what what kind of experience you've already had with this program. Yeah, so you're correct in that Sentinel isn't exactly you know a new thing. Right. Uh, we were always um, offering enhanced protection to certain accounts that, you know, uh, came to our attention uh, that, you know, belonged to prominent personalities uh, that were targeting, that were being targeted because, quite frankly, we saw the attacks, in, in, you know, mm. in our monitoring. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so, so it's not um, brand new in, in the sense that, you know, the technologies that it leverages have always been there and have been protecting Proton accounts, you know, for, you know, um, many, many years. Um, and actually, uh, these same technologies, in fact, are also being used even if you don't have Sentinel, right? So, so, so if you're like an average user, I would say the default protection level at Proton is already much higher than other, you know, competing email services. Uh, and to kind of give some context, per quarter, the amount of account takeover attempts that, you know, we block, uh, because these same systems, you know, also work for non-Sentinel users, but, you know, in a different way, in numbers in the hundreds of thousands. Wow. Uh, so that, that kind of gives you sort of the sense of scale. And mm. it also shows how big that problem actually is. Mm-hmm. And among, uh, Sentinel users, uh, yes, there, there are, you know, um, there have been a couple of situations and uh, it, it's, it's mostly, uh, attribution is very difficult, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but we've already had, you know, a, a number of incidents, uh, you know, almost on a quarterly basis where we are almost certain it's a Russian state actor that is, you know, going after these accounts. Uh, you know, um, some of these have, uh, let's say, um, leaked in the public domain. So the one I can share with you is, uh, you know, the investigative journalist at uh, Bellingcat. This is an organization that, you know, reports on Russia. Uh, mm. You know, and I can tell you this because they themselves publicly talked about okay. this, right? Yep. Uh, you know, uh, um, they were targeted by, you know, very sophisticated, uh, you know, state-sponsored actor you know, several years ago, right? Uh, so, 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 you know, these things, um, it may seem a little bit hypothetical and abstract, uh, but indeed they are happening. And, you know, so the program uh, does have, you know, a, a reason to exist. It's not security theater. Uh, there definitely are incidents and events where we see this happening out in the wild today. All right. So last question before you go. I, as I said earlier on, you guys have come a long way since 2014. As you know, it was Proton Mail, and now you had to drop the mail because you do so many other things. <laughs> um, so what's missing? What, what's left to complete your vision of Proton? Are there any offerings that you're not that you're ruling out? Like people have asked you for for years, you're like, nah, we're not going to go down that route. So what, what's the future look like for Proton? We have come a long way, but it's all relative to you know, uh, the target. And I'll kind of give an example of this. You know, we recently celebrated uh, you know 100 million accounts. People said, well, you know, that's a huge milestone. Well, you know, privacy has really gone mainstream. I didn't imagine Proton. <laughs> It gets so big, right? Uh, and my answer to them was, well, do you know how many accounts Google has? <laughs> you know, you know, Google in the same time period has grown to, you know, three or four billion accounts, right? Mm. So comparatively speaking, we're not doing so well. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I, we managed to get mail 
calendar, uh, you know, Drive, VPN, and now Pass. And uh, yeah, from kind of where we started nine years ago, that's good progress. But compared to Google's ecosystem, this is nothing, right? So to some extent, I'm worried because although we've made progress, I also feel like the gap between us and say the Googles of the world, uh, you know, uh, it has actually increased. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I'm maybe further away. So I, I've grown my product portfolio by 500%, right? But I may even be further away from where Google was, you know, compared to you know, ni- ni- nine years speaking. ago, right? Rel- yeah, yeah, relatively speaking, right? Uh, so, so that's a point that, you know, awards me quite a bit. So my concern is really on velocity. How can, you know, privacy and what we're doing go faster? Because we need to start to close the gap instead of letting it, it widen. And to be honest, without some good regulations to enforce fair competition, both in the US and the EU, it's going to be very difficult to close this gap because we're essentially fighting with, you know, one hand tied behind our back, maybe even two hands tied behind our back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so part of this, I think, needs to be regulatory pressure and regulatory changes, which give us a more fair, you know, playing field. But that doesn't mean that we're sitting still and waiting for the government to come save us, right? You know, we're still going to um, push and try to do our best to close the gap and build the ecosystem. And what are we adding next? Well, the best way to find out is to, to see what comes up often on Reddit, right? It's, it's what <sighs> the community is asking us to do. And I would say, you know, photos, for sure that's coming because, okay. uh, you know, uh, photo support is the biggest thing that people have asked for since Drive launched. Uh, you know, if you look at PASS, uh, desktop and web apps, for sure they're coming. You know, um, personally, I find the browser extensions and mobile applications fully suited for my needs, right? But, you know, there's a very vocal contingent that wants uh, sure. desktop applications. So uh, that's coming as well. Uh, if I look also at, you know, uh, what we've done on Drive, a lot of people are asking for documents. They want to have mm-hmm. you know, better document reviews, document editing, you know, collaborative documents, uh, you know, yes. end-to-end encryption. Uh, so, uh, yeah, that is, that's also coming. Better sharing functionalities to allow, you know, file sharing, password sharing, you know, Proton Pass Vault sharing. This is coming as well. And we made the first move in this direction uh, with the family plan that we launched, right? Family plan was sort of the first sort of, you know, um, non-professional ecosystem where you could share among a group of people. And this concept will get extended across the rest of our products. Uh, so this is probably what is coming in the immediate, uh, you know, six to, two mo- six to 12 months future roadmap. But um, we want to do a lot more. Uh, yeah, there's so much that Google does today that um, no one in the privacy space is covering uh, that I think is absolutely essential that we need to do. Because in the end, we want to be an alternative. And to be an alternative, you unfortunately need a full ecosystem. And that's just the reality of, you know, um, of working online and competing against big tech. All right, Andy. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about threat models and all the things you guys are doing. And I, I would love to have a Google Docs replacement. I, <laughs> there really aren't that many good ones out there, so I'd love to have that. So put my put my vote in for that one for your for your next big feature. Thanks for coming back, Andy. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, as I said, if you're asking for it, given the way that Proton works, it's going to come. So you know, uh, I encourage everybody come on Reddit, come on Twitter. You know, engage with us. Let us know what you want because at the end of the day, we are here to serve you. We're not here to serve advertisers. We're not here to serve investors, right? Uh, you know, um, you're the end customer and Proton, our mission, it belongs to you. So, yeah, again, it was a pleasure to be here. Always happy to, uh, you know, speak and, you know, hope to be back in the future with uh, some uh, new features and new products. Wonderful. Thanks, Andy. It was great to have Andy back on the show. I really, really enjoyed talking with him. He and I actually often talk uh, offline a little bit uh, before and after the show. And I really enjoyed the chance to speak with him and get his opinion on some things. He's a very, very interesting gentleman. And uh, I got some bonus content, as always, for the patrons. You guys will be getting that on Thursday, as usual. Uh, I kind of asked him, Andy, you know, why he does what he does, what drives him to privacy and, and what are kind of his philosophies behind it. We also get into a little bit of a debate about how serious Apple is about privacy. We all know I'm an Apple fanboy, uh, but, you know, even I know Apple's not perfect. And so anyway, we, we talk a little bit about that. And we also talk a little bit even about, you know, why Andy felt the need to pull Proton out of Russia. So anyway, that'll all be in the bonus content for the patrons. So as I said in the interview, I did turn on Proton Sentinel myself a couple of months ago, and I really honestly haven't noticed any change in the service. I'm not getting a lot of annoying warnings or strange restrictions or anything like that, which probably just goes to show that I'm not a really high value target. There's not a lot of people trying to get me 
but anyway, it, it's if you're our premium subscriber, it's uh, it's a free thing, and I don't know why you wouldn't turn it on. I put a link in the show notes to the uh, Privacy Decrypted blog issue number one. Uh, if you go there and you do some other searches, you'll find the rest of them. Just search on Privacy Decrypted. I also put a couple links to some interesting uh, websites that you might want to check out for determining your kind of personal threat model and maybe find help find some tools that will help you. Consumer Reports has a great tool called Security Planner. And Ars Technica has a really good series of articles on threat modeling as well. I put links to those in the show notes. So we got some great shows coming up. Next week, I'm going to have a bit of a, a light news show plus a mailbag feature. I'm finally going to answer several, not just one, but several Dear Carrie questions in one episode. And then we've got some great interviews coming on the pike. We've got Corey Doctorow will be the next one up. He'll be talking about the encrapification of the internet, though he doesn't use the word crap. And I also recently spoke with Danny Rogers and Rocky Cole, who are the co-founders of iVerify. That was a really interesting discussion about uh, mobile malware. And several other great interviews are already in the works, so subscribe now, and that way you won't miss any of it. That'll do it for this week, everybody. Take care out there, stay safe, and until next time, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down. Drawbridge down.